Good morning, dear intriguer. Did you hear that the Australian government is hiring a group of consultants to advise on the government's hiring of consultants? We've officially reached the singularity. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder Helen Zhang to discuss a potential solution to Haiti's security crisis and factional fighting in Lebanon. It's all coming up. Morning, Helen. How are you? Morning, Ethan. I'm doing great. How you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm doing fantastic. We were just talking before we started recording about how summer is flying by. You're not going to have as many opportunities come September to wear your white linen pants. Oh. How does that make you feel? Mate, that's, I mean, it makes me very upset, but I think it's probably for, for the collective good if I stop wearing <laughs> white linen pants as much as I do. <laughs> there you go. So, Helen, we are talking about Haiti today, uh, which is a country that seems stuck in a perpetual state of crisis. Yeah, that's right. It, it, it kind of always has been, though. So, I mean, like, let's let, let's dial back a bit and start at Haiti's founding, which was marked in 1804 after a 13-year revolt by the island slaves out of their French colonial masters. I think we had done a segment on that back in, back in the day for Intrigue, which was amazing because, you know, that was a great cause for celebration for sure, but interference by outside powers in Haiti's affairs had um, hardly ended there because, you know, fast forward 20 years, the French then sent a fleet of warships to Haiti's shores, demanding a sum of what, like 150 million francs to exchange for the island's independence. Um, and so economists say like that amount is equal to about 30 billion US dollars today uh, in today's money, which is 50% more than the country's GDP. And, you know, like Haiti's woes didn't stop there. For 20 years, between 1915 to 1934, American troops occupied the island to protect American business interests. But a lot of historians say that period also badly impacted Haiti's long-term economic outlook. Right. And and Haiti's experience with, with foreign powers didn't stop there. I mean, the U.S. sent 25,000 troops to the island in, in 1994 mm-hmm. to remove a military junta and reinstall the democratically elected president. And then again, again they sent uh, another contingent of Marines to try to stabilize the country after a coup in 2004, which at first glance, those seem like more noble causes than the intervention in the 1915 uh, but neither had the intended effect of, you know, stabilizing Haiti's economy or political system. Yeah, no, not at all. And and by the way, we should note that like many Haitians believe and not unfairly that the US and France had orchestrated the coup in 2004 to remove a president who had been calling for reparations from France for the extortion two centuries prior. Um, so it didn't go well for that dude. But anyway, that, that brings us up to today when Haiti is without a democratically elected president or a singly a single democratically elected government official so last pre- democratically elected president Jovenel Moise was assassinated in 2021 and its last democratically elected government officials its senators stepped down in January so without a stable government like networks of criminal gangs have come in to fill that power vacuum um and look Ethan I've seen some various estimates but according to one DC based think tank the Wilson Center uh, gangs now control 90%, like 90% of the country in Haiti's capital, wow. Port-au-Prince. Yeah. 9-0. Yeah. I mean, I, it, yeah, like you said, it, it varies from, from 60 to 90. Let's assume it's 75% smack dab in the middle. Right. That still means that 
the vast majority of the country's capital is under control uh, by criminal gangs, and, and they control it brutally. I mean, there was an article I read recently by the New Yorker's John Lee Anderson that we can link to in the show notes that reports on the tactics the gangs use and that they are much too horrifying to recount here. But, but Helen, what can be done about this? Uh, well, yes, of course, no easy fix, as always, which is a very unsatisfying answer, I know, uh, because, you know, there are so many layers uh, to the problem. And it's not just security, but, of course, also the economy and the political system. But experts say, that, you know, those two latter issues, like the economy and political system, are secondary concerns at the moment. The most important thing is regaining control of streets and making Haitians feel safe. And the best way to do that is by empowering the Haitian police to once again do their jobs. As of now, there are only around 10,000 members of the Haitian National Police. Um, and experts say that, you know, it should at least be 2x or twice as many. Um, and for the most part, the police can't come close to matching the firepower of the gangs, which many of them go, uh, and many of them actually still go unpaid. So, of course, nobody wants to do a job, let alone such a dangerous job, without a decent salary. Frankly, Haiti needs some outside help to make all this happen. Its interim president, Ariel Henry, has been calling for help for months. So has the UN Secretary General. But figuring out who should lead such a force is the real challenge. Right. Because of everything we talked about at the beginning, you know, Haitians are understandably mm. a bit skeptical of a superpower like the United States coming in to save the day. Right. Or France or insert whichever superpower as well. Right. Uh, but look, we've got some big news this week on this front that Kenya uh, now plans to lead an international mission to Haiti featuring around a around thousand of its own police officers to help put a lid on the situation. The U.S. has said it would introduce a resolution to the U.N. to authorize this mission, and some other countries like the Bahamas have already offered to send police officers as well. This is exactly the solution that the U.S. is looking for, a strong, capable, and well-trained force of non-Western police officers who can go into Haiti without all the associated baggage of historical trauma. Right. Absolutely. I mean, a great solution if it works, but we should know that while the U.S. was making plans this week to help authorize this Ken Kenya-led mission abroad, U.S.-based human rights groups were issuing condemnations over the Kenyan police's conduct at home. So something's uh, not adding up. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. Uh, look, the Kenyan police have also been trying to squash opposition protests across their country for months and have faced serious allegations of abuse back home. So uh, just last week, in fact, uh, some members of Kenya's parliament held a moment of silence for recent victims of police abuse. But look, hopefully, with some oversight from the UN, the officers going over to Haiti will act with more restraint and gain the trust of the people there. Uh, look, either way, Ethan, Haiti needs help. There's no two ways about it. And in a perfect world, there would be a stable political system to manage that crisis and devise a domestic solution to put the country back on track. But as we know, it's hardly a perfect world. So this might just be the next best option that Haiti has right now. Today's show is sponsored by Flavier. Flavier helps you curate your home bar with the classic, the crafty, and the rare gem spirits that match your personal taste. You can sample and train your palate with themed tasting sets, which are guaranteed to help you find your new favorites. Flavier is the best way to experience the spirit of exploration. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. All right, welcome back. So, Helen, mind if I kick it off today? Yeah, please do. Well, we're, we're going to be talking about another 
sort of downer story, but I've been following these these ongoing clashes between two Palestinian factions at the uh, Ain al Hawe uh, refugee camp in Lebanon. Mm. So calling this place a, a, a camp, a refugee camp, sort of obscures what it what it is. I mean, it's a bustling neighborhood of around sixty thousand people inside a, a city called Saida or Sidon on the Mediterranean coast uh, that was established to house Palestinian refugees of the Arab-Israeli War of 1948. And as with other Palestinian-controlled areas, you know, there's the West Bank and Gaza, this camp is divided into Mm -hmm. distinct political camps. There's there's Fatah, which is the more establishment party, um, as you know, that, you know, controls the, the Palestinian parts of the West Bank. And opposing Fatah, there are these militant Islamist groups, you know, think Hamas um, or adjacent to Hamas, which which controls the, the Gaza Strip. And this week, the world watched rather nervously when because fighting broke out between these these factions. Uh, dozens have been killed and, and thousands of others have been forced to flee their homes. Oh, gosh. Actually, I had missed that story, Ethan. So what, what's being done about this? Well, at the moment, it's not clear what can be done. Uh, on Tuesday, the Lebanese militant group Hezbollah brokered a ceasefire. That was quickly broken. Uh, they even looped in the leader of Fatah, Mahmoud Abbas, who also serves as the Palestinian president. Uh, he tried to secure a ceasefire, but for, for reasons that we don't have time to get into, he doesn't quite have the credibility these days to make a difference there. Uh and yesterday, the Lebanese caretaker government went so far as to warn Mahmoud Abbas that it would send in its army uh, to the camp if need be to, to stop the fighting, which is a step a step it would very, very rarely take. I mean, the refugee camps across Lebanon are effectively self-governed. I mean, there's no, if any, oversight from the Lebanese government inside these places. Uh, the last time... The Lebanese army did enter a camp to stop violence was in 2007, and it turned into a months-long war. So, point is, this is really worth watching. This whole situation could very well get a whole lot worse before it gets better. Right. Thanks, Ethan. That's uh, something I'll definitely be watching. Yeah, keep an eye on that one. What, what's on your mind? Oh, well, you know, what's not, what's not on my mind, Ethan? I think when I was thinking about what to talk about today, I, I briefly thought about, you know, either Justin Trudeau separation or maybe the uh, the, <laughs> the fake sun bear from a Chinese zoo. I don't know if you saw that. It's oh, I didn't quite see funny. that. Well, what's the, what's the what's the 60 seconds on that or the, the 10 seconds? The te- 10 seconds on that is that, you know, of course, Chinese zoos have always, like, had a patchy history of, like, faking their animals, uh-huh. right? So the most recent one was in a Hangzhou zoo uh, that has Southeast Asian sun bear standing on hind legs. And if you've seen photos of it, it looks like genuinely like a, a person dressed in a sun bear suit. Um, so, of course, everyone has um, has been has been accusing the Chinese zoo of uh, putting up a fake sun bear. Did you see the guy that uh, paid $20,000 to dress up as a dog? I did. And I think the meme in which I saw it was like, this is why the world needs to end. Yes. Uh, or something yeah. to that effect. <laughs> and, I mean, and look, the dog looks like Richard Gere, right? Have you seen those? things that like dogs that resemble human beings that particular dog looks like richard gear I, I i would tend to agree with that i was fascinated by the fact that other dogs immediately recognized it as a human and they stayed away <laughs> yes. from it so yes, exactly. for all you know this this person paid so much money to dress up like a dog uh only to be rejected by the crowd that he was trying to fit that's in right with. what is this mutant dog well helen you know what <laughs> 
Do you want to talk about geopolitics? Yeah, I mean, like, as good as some bears were, let's talk about geopolitics. I mean, look, what's really on my mind is really, I think some of us probably have probably have seen the headlines that former Myanmar leader Aung San Suu Kyi, aka the lady, has been pardoned in, I think, five of the 19 charges that were brought against her by the military. Um, and so, look, what that means is that the pardon uh, will reduce her currently 33-year jail sentence by uh, a very generous six years. Um, and so the last week... Uh, Miss Suchi was moved from prison to house arrest in the capital Naypyidaw, um, which, of course, this is a this has caused a lot of uh, great optimism in I think some Western media outlets because, in addition to her pardon, the former president Wing Mint has also been uh, well had a reduced jail sentence after getting two of his charges pardoned. Um, so it looks like you know the military junta of Myanmar has made some concessions in what I think many believe to be efforts to revive their their currently stalled diplomat, dip, diplomatic efforts. I mean, is that optimism well founded? Is this good news for those folks in Myanmar that are concerned about? democratic governance? Uh, yeah, well, look, the, the TLDR is that there's obviously pressure from the military junta, on the on the military junta to do better. And it's not necessarily an indication that they're moving in the right direction. But I think some some analysts have seen this as like a sort of uh, diplomatic chip yeah, that the military junta is using to kind of get what they need, which is, um, you know, access from uh, or buy-in from their neighbours uh, to relieve some of the financial crisis in Ecuador, where, you know, within the financial bureaucracy, you've seen that the state banks have seen numerous hard currency transactions blocked internationally and that foreign currency inflows have really been hit. Um, and then also, you know, in, in Singapore, which is once the uh, fi- offshore financial centre for Myanmar's generals is now cracking down on Myanmar's accounts that are related to the regime, uh, partly in response to the US's requests. Um, and so really, you know, in addition to that, the regime's very savage military campaign so far to stamp out any dissent throughout the country is is not going well. You know, since we, we saw, I think everyone will remember that, that really eerie clip of the, I think, Zumba dancer or the instructor who accidentally filmed the start of the, the, uh, the Hunter's uh, coup rolling into Naypyidaw in February 2021. And I think since then there's been, you know, a huge escalation of aerial bombing campaigns and arrests and killings. Um, and so over the last two years, you know, the regime now only control less than, I think, 50% of the country's territory, um, but it still continues to hold all the major cities and towns. Uh, so there's a huge, you know, internal displacement issue, according to the United Nations. Um, and, you know, the junta is attempting is attempting to dig itself out of this by offering up uh, or keep releasing or relieving Aung San Suu Kyi of her, her sentences to sort of try and uh, woo back some of their neighbours from ASEAN and mm. West support. Always worth watching these these instances where autocratic regimes offer concessions very closely and, and ask the question, what are they really up to? Thank you so much for, for coming on and answering some of those tough questions. Thank you, Ethan. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, we've got all sorts of great recommendations for your weekend over at the International Intrigue newsletter, so make sure you check it out before EOD today. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Tuesday. Tuesday.